In today's gospel, at the return of the great king, he divides the two parties. And the criteria is not whether you were a Baptist or an Episcopalian or whatever. The criteria is, did you feed me? Did you clothe me? Did you visit me? And those who did visit Christ and clothed Christ and fed Christ say, what are you talking about? I've never met you before in my life. I've read the Bible before. I've gone to church before. I literally have no idea what you mean. And there's this kind of poetic beauty and this deep meaning to this idea of feeding Christ and clothing Christ and so forth. But it also is kind of an odd concept. We sort of have to be with them. Like, are you talking about reincarnation? Is this some kind of like hologram situation? What, what is it that we mean by you actually clothed Christ when you gave somebody a t-shirt? Well, picture to yourself a purely hypothetical Canadian. And this Canadian hates the United States of America. He thinks that we were absurdly disloyal to the good King George, that people like Paul Revere, George Washington, infamous traitors to the crown, we should be a valuable part of the Commonwealth, and instead we've just gone rogue, doing our own thing, and just ruined North America. And now imagine his house, his Canadian prairie homestead, big red barn, farmhouse, and every morning before the crack of dawn, he goes out in the darkness, unfurls this huge 50-foot American flag, runs it up the flagpole, gazes at it in admiration as it flutters in the breeze. And if you came along and said, why do you have an American flag if you hate America? He would say to you, well, it's not about America. It's just a beautiful flag. I mean, there's these colors. They set off my geraniums. They match my barn. It's just, look at it. It's, I can't stand America, but that flag is a work of art. And we would say, you're nuts. <laughs> because when you pay honor to a flag, it's not because primarily you really just love the symmetry of the Union Jack or the stars and bars or whatever. You're paying honor to the nation. And in the same way, if someone were to burn a flag in protest, most likely she is not protesting the use of red and blue nylon in American society. She's protesting America. It's, it's a symbolic burning. It's dishonoring the nation intentionally. From the world's perspective, this idea of, of feeding Christ, caring for Christ, and so forth, in feeding the poor, caring for the poor, this seems like kind of a shifty, strange concept. But from the Bible's perspective, it's completely logical. So in the Genesis narrative, we see the creation. And God doesn't zap the creation into being. He doesn't throw lightning bolts or hammer things out of steel or whatever. God speaks the creation into being. The creation comes into being through the word of God, the logos of God. And this is the word of God that St. John says in the beginning was the Word, the Word stood before God, the Word was God, and the Word came among us as this child, Jesus. And so you have these, this idea of the Word of God creating, and then you have the creation of Adam, in which Adam is formed out of the dust, life is breathed into Adam by God, and there are early icons of the creation of Adam. And in the creation of Adam, it is the Word, the Logos, not God the Father, that's creating Adam. And what does the Logos look like in these images? 
Jesus. You have this mind-bendingly strange idea that at the beginning of the creation was Jesus, who is forming Adam out of the dust, and Adam's face is exactly a reflection of Jesus' face in these icons. Humanity is the image and likeness of God. So in the ancient world, every temple had a statue. And if you wanted to honor Zeus or honor Ares or whatever, you would go and ritually wash the statue, adorn the statue with clothes or flowers or jewels, have a sacrifice before the statue. And if, say, you hated Zeus or hated Ares, you would topple the statue. You would smash the statue. You would let the statue decay. And just like a nation's flag, in dishonoring the statue, you weren't dishonoring Praxiteles or whoever made the statue, you were dishonoring the God it represented. And in honoring the statue, you weren't saying, gosh, that is some beautiful marble carving. You were honoring the God which it represented. Ancient Israel didn't have statues of God. The one true God doesn't have statues made with human hands. Instead, God has billions and billions of living, breathing, walking icons. Humanity, you and me. And so, like the flag, like the Roman statue, when you honor one of the icons of God, the honor is actually paid to the one the icon symbolically represents. The honor is paid to God Almighty. And when you dishonor an icon of God, when you let it die of starvation, when you let it die in the gutter, when it is sick or in prison and unvisited, when it is a stranger and unwelcomed, that dishonor is also paid to God. So you see, the, the love of God and love of neighbor, these are inextricably bound up in the commandments. You literally cannot separate one from the other. So this great king returns, the end of time happens, and he sorts the world into those who did him honor and those who did him dishonor. But we might say, okay, if you're the great king, if you ultimately hold all the cards and have all the power, why not just stop us from dishonoring altogether? Why not just make us be good to one another? Why not just make us feed the hungry and clothe the naked? Why would you allow Israeli citizens to be kidnapped and killed? Why would you allow Palestinian citizens to have bombs rain down upon them? Why not just stop all of this stuff? Make us all good. Well, Soren Kierkegaard explained, God has one problem. And he said that God is like, he sort of said, imagine the scenario in which you have a very traditional king, an old school king not a king from a constitutional monarchy, but a king who actually owns absolutely everything, everything and everybody. And so this king can say, you know, you, I like the way you look, I'm gonna make you a governor, you not so much, you're gonna be executed, total power over everything. And every three years, this king visits every city and village and town in his whole kingdom. And sometimes he likes what he sees and he makes it a new sort of governorship or a new dukedom or something. Sometimes he doesn't like what he sees and he calls in the bulldozers and they smash the whole village. And so a lot is riding on this visit of the king. So there's this village, tiny village, middle of nowhere, and they are preparing for three years for this visit from the king. 
They repave the streets. They paint all the houses. They hang flowers everywhere. It's a really big deal. And so the day of the visitation comes. And off in the distance, they hear, they see great clouds of smoke rising. As it gets closer, they see this train of carriages, all these courtiers, all these knights, great ladies, speeding towards the city at 90 miles an hour in golden carriages. They're like, careening through the city. It's a little tiny village, middle of nowhere. Nobody cares. They expect it to just keep on careening through. All the villagers are bowing down at the level of the street. And suddenly the king says, halt! And the whole train comes to a stop. And all the villagers say, uh-oh. This is not good. This has never happened before. But the king is a single guy. And he has been on all the dating apps. He has been, you know, putting in personal ads. He cannot find the love of his life. But he has just seen this woman kneeling by the road who is the most regal, noble-looking, beautiful, just amazing person he has ever seen. And he thinks, that's it. I found my queen. This is the best day of my life. So he opens the door of his golden carriage, and he starts to get out. But then he thinks of something. He realizes that if he goes to this woman kneeling on the sidewalk and says to her, you will be my queen, will you marry me? Of course she's going to say yes, because A, she wants a private jet and a golden carriage and all this stuff. B, she doesn't want him to get angry and burn down her whole village. And so like whatever, whatever happens, she's going to say yes. So he realizes that he has the power to make her fear him, or the power to make her desire him because of the rewards he can give, but he doesn't have the power to make her love him. And he actually wants to be loved for who he is. So he says, never mind, close the door of his carriage, and they zoom off at 90 miles an hour. And that night he's in the palace and he's racking his brain, thinking, I guess I'm just gonna be a bachelor for life, this stinks, you know, I was really hoping to get married one day, but I guess I have to give up hope. But then he has a eureka moment. A light bulb goes off above his head and he has this brilliant idea. He takes off his heavy golden crown. He takes off his ermine cape. He takes off his jeweled sword. He sets them all on the bed. He goes down to the basement of the palace, rummages around, finds some old potato sacks, puts them on, takes off his shoes, rubs ashes all over his hair and so forth, and walks out of the palace with no sandals, no bread, no money, no dagger, to walk back to this village, to knock on this woman's farmhouse door and to beg for a piece of bread and maybe some farm labor job to do. Because he realizes that if she falls in love with him under these circumstances, then she will really love him. And this is God's predicament. If God simply showed himself to us in all his radiance and glory, we would say either, you know, don't squash me or can I have some of that? But we wouldn't necessarily be able to fall in love with God. So we have Christ the King who comes to us as this tiny, helpless baby in the middle of nowhere who lives as this homeless, loving, generous, kind rabbi who dies as this crucified Messiah so that we will not be swayed by hope of reward or fear of punishment, but that we can actually fall in love with God, fall in love with Christ. This is what Christ the King looks like. And so we have free will because love has to be given freely, in freedom. 
You can't put a gun to someone's head and say, fall in love with me, or give them a million dollar check and say, fall in love with me. And so we have the freedom to do good or evil. We have the freedom to honor the image and likeness of God in our neighbors, or dishonor the image and likeness of God in our neighbors. And one day, Christ the King will return in all his glory, in all his splendor, and end all this inhumanity. So our job, here and now, is to prepare for that. Not by earning brownie points, not by being good little boys and girls and following the rules, but by falling in love with God through falling in love with our neighbors. And you might say, well, I'm up for feeding and clothing and visiting and welcoming some people, but not necessarily others. But this is like saying, I'm okay with burning a polyester American flag, but I would never burn a silk American flag. It has nothing to do with the project. So we are called to love and serve and care for our family members, our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues, people who live around us, people who really get on our nerves, homeless people, people on the other side of the globe. This is what the Christian project looks like. This is what it is to love God. And I don't know how you're doing on this front, but I am terrible. And so I need a lot of help. I need a lot of grace. I need a lot more Christ in my life through Christ's word, through Christ's sacraments. I need to be made more human. I need to be made more and more into the image and likeness of God myself. So we're going to enter into Advent next weekend. And this is a special time of reflection and prayer to make straight the way of the Lord, to make straight the Lord's path, to ready ourselves for his coming. And I hope you'll join me in keeping a holy advent. Amen.